0: Hey everyone, Alex Aragona here. For those of you who don't know, after releasing 100 episodes of The Curious Task, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Our 100th episode will be our last episode only for about a month. We'll be back on a regular schedule starting again on August 4th. In the meantime, we may release some bonus clips and a couple of extras. And of course, we're still taking suggestions and emails like we always have at liberalstudies.ca. As for now, you can enjoy 100 episodes of The Curious Task, and we're looking forward to getting back on a regular schedule on August 4th. What is neoliberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Schleser. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Eric Schleser. Eric is professor of political science with a focus on political theory at the University of Amsterdam's Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences. His research encompasses a variety of themes, ranging from economic statistics and classical Babylon, the history of the natural sciences and forgotten 18th century feminists, both male and female, to political theory and the history of political theory and the assumptions used in mathematical economics. His interest in the influence of the Chicago School of Economics has increasingly moved his research toward the study of the methodology and political role of economists as experts. Eric has published prolifically on Newton, Spinoza, Hume, and Adam Smith, just name a few, and has been the editor of many projects. He also keeps a daily blog called Digressions and Impressions. Eric, welcome to The Curious Task
1: thank you for
0: having me. So Eric, in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is neoliberalism? So we're going to explore that. Um, Let me just say this seems to be a widely talked about but still misunderstood topic. There are people who dismiss the term neoliberalism and discuss it as meaningless. And on the other hand, there are respected professors and intellectuals who find enough depth on this topic for hours of lectures and hundreds of words and blog posts. So uh, I don't think we can simply dismiss it. So hopefully you can guide us through this this very interesting and complex topic. I, I think the best place to start is to get one question out of the way at the outset. For those sincerely interested in what many now call classical liberal ideas, is the discussion on what neoliberalism means truly important to understand? And if so, why?
1: Initially, and I think this is backed into your thoughts, I was one of the people that thought that the word neoliberal just meant everything that I dislike about capitalism. And uh, and for many years, uh, I would actually be rather critical of my own students if they used the word neoliberalism in papers or in class, rather than explaining something concrete that I didn't like about the status quo. Um, but... At some point, I got curious, and I just started to read up on the history of the term and of the concept, and I actually now think that neoliberalism really is something real, and it's important to understand both uh, the evolution of the term and how people started to use it as a term of abuse, and also how to think about the difference between what is commonly known as classical liberalism and what? for a while was really understood to be uh, 20th century neoliberalism. Just before I go on, I do want to make a meta point, and that is one of the really fascinating things about the term neoliberalism is that it gets invented multiple times in the last two centuries. So in the 19th century, as liberalism comes along, at various points, people start to refer to themselves as new kinds of liberals, and sometimes they use the term neoliberalism. This I learned from some European scholars, uh, Karen Horn and Stefan Kolev, uh, both of them are strong friends of classical liberalism, who I think were just as surprised as I was that there is this long prehistory of of relatively classical liberals uh, rejecting the tradition in some sense but wanting to hold on to it and calling themselves neoliberalism. So with that out of the way, I think in the 20th century neoliberalism really got reinvented and became a very powerful meme uh, around 1938 and was used as a self-description for um, free market types, let's call it like that, in uh, Europe and in uh, America in the 40s and 50s and even up to the 60s. Um, And so, you know, people like Milton Friedman and uh, 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 Hayek They, in various periods of their life, would call themselves neoliberal. Now, the term really got wider currency because of an event that was held in 1938 in Europe um, in response to a book by a guy called Walter Lippmann, who um, uh, it's hard to imagine now, but in the middle of the 20th century was the most famous journalist in the world he himself his own intellectual trajectory is uh, uh, zigzags a bit so he was uh in the in the brain trust of president wilson after the end of world war 1 he was a partial new dealer during the new deal and then some way in the 30s he he felt that the new deal was moving too far toward interventionism not you know, saving capitalism was one thing, but becoming a uh, uh, a planned economy was a bad idea. And he's, he really started to pull together a whole bunch of ideas that we now partially associate with Austrian economics and partially stuff he invented. And one of his key insights, which turned out to be, I think, prophetic for other neoliberals, was to say, look, in the 19th century Liberalism became an ideology that was associated with the status quo, with the enforcement of property rights against democracy and also against vulnerable people in a way that ossified uh, power and ossified the wealthy's privileges. And he felt that liberalism in general needed a rethink. And this hit a chord in the 20s and 30s, particularly at the end of the 30s, when fascism and communism looked like they're the future. And his book, The Good Society, uh, became a worldwide hit. And in Europe, it was like a beacon for uh, these economists and lawyers and political theorists who felt that liberalism didn't have a future. Um, And they organized an event, basically a book seminar, four or five days around his book, And a who's who of 20th century liberalism attended this event in Paris. It's known as the Colloquium Litman. And there really what became known as neoliberalism was invented. So at this event, uh, except for Friedman and Milton Friedman and Stigler, pretty much everybody who became famous for being a neoliberal and later who got associated with the Mont Pelerin Society, they were there and they hashed out how to think about basically rebooting liberalism. And at this event, they, they, there was no consensus, but there was clearly a thought that liberalism itself had to confront the fact that even though it was the ruling intellectual movement and ideology of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century was a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. There was World War One, There was, um, you know, imperialism that had gotten completely out of hand and, led to open-ended warfare. There was a gigantic depression, uh, hyperinflation, democracies collapsing. So I think as genuine intellectuals, that crowd really said to themselves, look, if we believe that liberalism is in some ways the right way to go, how come we were part of this gigantic failure? Mm. And I think they did some honest soul-searching. They recognized that some of their important commitments had not stayed fresh. So, um, I, and I think what you see is, is starting in the, uh, in the war, in World War II, is really two intellectual movements, maybe free intellectual movements, that start to rethink uh, liberalism and that you can cluster together as neoliberal. One that's probably most familiar to North Americans is uh, the Chicago School of Economics, uh, centered on, on, on Simons and Milton Friedman and Stigler, One is what's sort of known as Austrian economics, primarily exiled uh, liberal economists uh, from Austria, Uh, Mises, uh, Hayek, Haberler, there are some uh, famous thinkers. Um, And then the third group, which in many ways is most obscure to North Americans, are known as order liberals, centered on uh, a guy called Eucken, who was an economist in Freiburg. And who had uh, a lot of very influential students who ended up being the lawyers and economists running uh, the West German Federal Republic after World War II. These three groups really did the hard work of reinventing liberalism to both respond to the failures of the 19th century and this, this, this implosion of this worldview, and also to respond to these three kinds of threats, right? Nazism, communism... And the idea that kind of welfare state social democracy, we can call it the New Deal or we could call it uh, the British Beverage Plan, that those are really the future and that liberalism is the past. And so liberalism had to invent itself to come to terms with its own failure, but also there are these rival intellectual movements that look <laughs> like they're the future and sometimes think they're scientifically the future but right. communists certainly thought that. Right. So it's an exciting period of re- rethinking things.
0: That provides an excellent overview, Eric. I want to drill down on a couple of points. I was taking a couple of notes as we were going, and I have a few things to add on top of that. You just covered a lot of history of the term. And like I said, we'll drill down further in just a second. But th- just before we leave the point about people's dismissiveness of the term, so is, is your conclusion that a lot of people are dismissive of, of the word simply because it's often used as a political label in the most negative and flippant way? Is that sort of discouraging people in your mind from actually uh, wanting to understand more about what's behind the label and in the history of it?
1: You know, uh, scholarship is both the search of truth, but it can also sometimes be uh, movement building or alliance seeking. Mm. And one of the things we, I think you can see in scholarship about neoliberalism from a kind of um, critical perspective is that there's been a lot of guilt by association uh, uh, about liberals and neoliberals such that lots of things got grouped together as neoliberal that if you're reasonably fair and impartial really shouldn't be grouped together. Mm. So I, um, you know, there's this very influential book by this uh, very good Marxist scholar, Harvey, which became this gigantic bestseller, which is really a, a short history of neoliberalism. Right. And if you read that, and you know, it has enormous amount of citations, it gets used in undergrad courses. If you read that book, he really at some point starts to use neoliberalism, everything he hates about capitalism, such that the Chinese Communist Party, Pinochet, um, Milton Friedman, they're all one and the same. Uh and, and sort of modern anything connected to modern capitalism. And it's true that from some angles, there are you can treat these things at this, uh, the same, but from other angles, there really is a difference between a communist dictatorship and you neoliberalism. Know, and so at that point, the term really does start losing a fixed reference. And you see that happening in scholarship and undoubtedly that enters different classrooms as well. Um, you know, every contested term has... A trajectory like this, so we shouldn't be surprised by it. Right. It happens to the word feminism, happens to the word Marxism. I mean, so lots of terms get these valences where they start shifting. But in neoliberalism, was really very egregious how far it started to spread.
0: So, and in terms of what the term itself means, of course, you went through a lot of different variations of it. Um, in other reading I've done and other people I've talked to, it seems like there's other terms that are used to. Uh, that are synonymous with neoliberalism. So it seems to me that there was a period... Uh, in the 60s and 70s, where, you know, some people were simply using the word neoliberal to describe sort of like a new type of Democrat, like some of the Democrats in the United States are saying, I'm a new liberal. And I I read some some articles about that. As you said, there is the sense in which neoliberalism is just simply the new classical liberalism, if you will. And then there's also the whole discussion about the Washington consensus and what essentially amounts to lots of policy and discussion, which we can park and put aside for a second. So before we leave, this part of the conversation, I just want to say, what should the listener as, as we untangle this web? What should the listener keep in mind as we move forward that some of these we should set aside for a second and and push our investigation further in this conversation that way? Or should we kind of keep all of these in mind as we move forward? It's it's I still want to make sure that we make it as, as simple yet as possible, with enough information as possible as we move forward?
1: Well, so I, um, I've um i recently been reading and thinking and blogging about this lecture series by Foucault that he gave in the late 1970s, where he traces the history of liberalism, basically in the 18th century and the 20th century. And what he really points out, which is really very nice, is that classical liberals of the 18th century For them, human nature is really about exchange and trade and where markets are in some ways natural phenomena that originate spontaneously. Right. You leave things alone, you get markets. I think what's really interesting about neoliberals, and Foucault has his finger on this, is that they view markets as something that needs to be constructed and that the people in it are really uh, need to be taught to be competitive and entrepreneurial. That this doesn't come naturally to us; it's one of it's a disposition we might have. But social institutions need to generate this kind of human capital, mm. such that we're engaged, we're willing to engage in competition that then has lots of rules and norms that are in part socially structured by the law, by politics, by public opinion.
0: So here we note the difference between competition and exchange. Crucially,
1: yes, in in a, in a crucial way. I mean, so liberals always have liked competition, liberals have always liked a, a fair exchange, in some sense. But in the 18th century, human nature is really thought of as as, an, as as fundamentally about trading with others. And in the 20th century, neoliberals say, "Well, actually, we're really fundamentally about being competitive in mm-hmm. some ways." But this needs to be this needs to be stimulated. It doesn't come. Uh, you know we we're just as likely to sit around if we don't have the incentives and opportunities to be competitive.
0: I guess it would also be crucial to know, I mean, then you let me know if this is true, that one in, important distinction as well is that in the 1700s, we're talking about the the butcher, the baker, etc. And then as we get into the late 1800s, early 1900s, we're talking about, uh, you know, international oil companies and, and fruit companies and things like that, which is sort of a different discussion. And we'll talk about cr- the creation of markets later, perhaps internationally, but, but I would think that's something to keep in mind as well as we move forward.
1: Yes. So, and in fact, I think you've, but you're teaching me something, a really key bit about thinking that markets are constructed, which is a neoliberal idea, is also that corporations are these legal entities that are structured by politics and law, mm-hmm. and that will impact how we think about competition. Right. And that's something that the 18th century kind of recognizes. They're not silly about it. But they don't put it front and center the way the 20th century does. Yeah, I like that. Thank
0: you. To dive into that a little further, I guess, is that when you really look at what a corporation is, especially when you get the rise of limited liability and the way it's actually constructed in a way, it's a structure that negates market forces, specifically the costs and liabilities. That's a whole different problem, I think, that needs to be recognized if we really want to take the wealth of nations, for instance, let's call classical liberalism for a second, talk about as again, butchers and bakers and move that to Amazon. That's a whole principles of apply of markets, of course. And but I mean, that is we are talking about different entities on the market for exchanging. So I think that is a crucial difference.
1: Yeah. And if we start talking about corporations and their liabilities, and also their accounting, we're also looking at the uh, political field that helps structure and condition that. And so if you start thinking about what's really different about uh, 18th century liberalism in the 20th century, the 18th century liberal really is saying, I mean, I don't think this simplistically, keep politics out of things. The 20th century is saying, look, politics has a task, namely to get it right, such that we can have competition that benefits everybody. Um, And that that really is a different mindset.
0: And so, so I have a few other questions, of course. I'm going to move us a, a little bit away from the definitional part of the conversation, but one more clarification before we do move on. So, at the end of the day, we discussed a lot of different meanings of the term, some of the history involved in it. Um, some seem to use it as purely an economic policy descriptor. Others see it as simply a set of political views and values when they talk about neoliberalism. Others say it's it's really a package of both. It's a thick philosophy, that, that kind of thing. Uh, again, are all, are all of these angles applicable to this conversation, or do you think it's better off we do think of this as, as a whole thing as a set of, for instance, policies and values or... Or how do we go about that?
1: I I, I like when I'm self-describing the uh, intellectual outlook that I have affinity with to keep it as a fairly broad package of interacting commitments. But when I'm uh, looking as a scholar to what other people are doing, I'm willing to acknowledge and concede that for some, uh, the, de- the definition is more narrow or it's not even applicable to them because they treat it as... You know, left-wing democ- American Democrats, right? Right. So I think I think this is we really jointly have to do hard work to make sure we disambiguate. Um, but it sounds like you're keeping track just fine, so I'm not too worried.
0: <laughs> well, I'll I'll do my best actually as we move into some of the, the, the harder hitting stuff if you will. So I know and that's actually a good point. We should probably mention exactly what we mean by the word even as we're exploring a whole hour of, of what it means. So, so let, let's try to do some applications here and, and hopefully what these do is not just offer critiques of, of certain events that have happened in the past, but actually offer again a way for us to understand neoliberalism, its history and, and what it means. So so let's let's shift gears to this. The hardest hitting critics, this is what they have to say about liberalism, essentially. And again, as you said, we can't make it all simple, but this is a common threat. On the economic side, it often presents itself politically with nice discussions about markets and competition. And in reality, policy wise, of course, things do lead to privatizations. Yes, but not so much to be said for markets. This is what the, a lot of the critics say. For example, Latin America has had years of experience with the, we were talking about before the creation of markets. In many cases, you can see these weren't really markets per se. They were more like social policy that involves state and private entities setting the rules of the game. Uh, So and again, sometimes this sort of case study and discussion overlaps with the people that do say neoliberalism is just simply everything they hate. But but what and and everything I just said there, what can we pull out that actually helps us understand neoliberalism from a policy perspective post World War II? Are the are these critiques legitimate? And I guess in this case, as you said, keeping track of definitions, we're keeping. Aside here, anybody that would say that neoliberalism simply means a new form of classical liberalism. Here we're yeah. talking about people that have critiqued how people may, for instance, have taken some of Milton Friedman principles, but actually move them into policy.
1: Yeah. So maybe it would be helpful if I explained where I'm coming from myself. I, I think uh, genuine neoliberalism and uh, its offshoots Um, had a very good run from 1945 to about 2008. Um, uh, What looked like a fairly catastrophic century moved into a liberal sensibility. Um, Hayek and Friedman became the most celebrated uh, economists and intellectuals of their time. Lots of uh, social democratic parties Except the market and competition for lots of policies, so I, so I think in many ways, liberalism, after coming to near extinction, did really well in the twentieth century. But I also think that uh, the last decade has not been good for liberalism. So conventional wisdoms is moving against it. You know people are are willing to engage in trade war, close borders. Be very anti-immigration, mm. xenophobic, and racism are you know allowed in good company. Um, people are starting to wonder whether democracy is a good thing. Uh, financial markets seem to work for uh, not really for the economy, but require these gigantic bailouts. Right. Uh, you know, we we privatized or made independent these central banks and. Uh, we're now look like we're in this gigantic experiments. So I think intellectuals who are friendly to liberalism and, and, and politicians and public servants have to think about what happened the last few decades such that we're in this predicament. Mm. So given that, I think the question is a fair question and one that I think, you know, we do have to ask ourselves were in all cases where was privatization really a way to generate, competition and, and, and cheaper consumer goods or was it a way to help uh uh business people was access to soft government loads or to government enforced monopolies. Right. Right? And I think I think too often privatization was used as a code word for helping uh privileged business people mm-hmm. rather than helping citizens. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I think it's pretty clear that if you deregulate financial markets in a system like ours, that bubbles are likely, and how to think about what the effects of financial bubbles are is not easy. But um, even though financial markets are very regulated, in the public's mind, they look like their most capitalist thing around. Um A third thing, just to give another buzzword where I think it really makes sense to ask ourselves, did we do right, is um, lots of bureaucracies and public uh, uh, institutions started to be treated as if they're for-profit centers and started to be treated as they're like pseudo markets. Right, right. And that creates all kinds of weird and perverse incentives. And sometimes it generates better uh, bureaucracies. But more often than not, and this is entirely predictable, it actually incentivizes the wrong sort of behavior for people who you really just want to be following the rules or showing good judgment. So I think there, um, as liberalism started to win in the late 20th century, all kinds of ideas that should have been stress tested a bit more before they got wide uh, application uh, got got taken up, um, you know, maybe too ambitiously and too excitedly. And I think it's, you know, if you're not willing to learn from your mistakes, uh, you're just an ideologue. So I think even for mm-hmm. liberalism, I think there's part of that critique that makes sense. Um, but again, sometimes on case-by-case basis, you find, look, the alternatives are also bad and maybe giving a partial monopoly to a business might be, you know, a better way to get clean water in some environment than not. I mean, it really, I think, Often depends on what the realistic alternatives are.
0: Back to the the idea you you sort of said ambition, excitement, etc. Throughout these decades, uh, that this is some something that's always sort of confused me. At least like at a con- conceptual level, I find like again, and for, as we discussed earlier, it's not for all bad reasons or, or stupid reasons. People are a little uh, defensive about this uh, this word neoliberalism because it is often used in a, in a very cheap way. But when it is used in a way to At least be a friend for legitimate critique. I find it very interesting that people who are genuine classical liberals, people you talk to that actually are in favor of markets, not just privatization, will sort of not take that opportunity in this neoliberal conversations to, as sort of we did, distinguish between what, as you said, privatization for one company and somewhere like Guatemala means versus actually opening up a market for the people. Yeah. Th- that's a very interesting thing. So I feel like th- there's also a lot of missed opportunities here for people who consider themselves classical liberals or in favor of these Enlightenment liberal ideas to actually I- explore this topic rather than just say to somebody who's talking about neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s, oh, you just don't like capitalism. Again, some people just don't and they're just throwing yeah. it out there. But if you put those people aside, I think there's a lot more going on and a lot more at play than one would think.
1: I think you just gave me a compliment and I'll accept it. But I think <laughs> it's also one of the reasons why I moved from doing primarily obscure scholarship to more contemporary political theory hmm. is that I partially felt like the kind of things that I want to hear are not being said as much as I would like. Maybe I should try doing it myself. So I I recognize that. Um, I, I also, I mean, I, I, what we mentioned before we started talking is somebody like Jacob Levy. I do think mm-hmm. there are people out there that are capable of crafting, you know, from a sincere perspective, uh, you know, of, of friendliness to liberalism, also to be aware that, look, there's another side. So I'm, I i do not want to be thought of as an iconoclast. I'm the only one. But I, 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 I do think there are missed opportunities, but I think it's partially because a lot of people are very used to a debate between markets and states Mm -hmm. and and, and then just get in a frame that, well, my side has to be better than the other side. One thing I like about recovering the neoliberal moment of the mid-20th century is the neoliberals then were very clear that in order to have good markets, you need to have sophisticated states. You need to have good legal structure. You need to have human capital. You need to have- The framework. The framework, yeah. And so once you see that actually you need both, I think that avoids a lot of, I think, one-sided conversations.
0: I think that's actually an excellent place to take our break because we're at that time. Time flies on this topic. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Schleser today. Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to Studies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Darcy Giroux, Elizabeth Aragona, and Janet Bufton. As always, remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Schliezer today. Eric, I think the first half of our conversation was great. We covered some definitions, some history, some different points of view on the term neoliberalism. Before the break, you quickly mentioned something, and I thought it was very interesting. I think it was in, in regards to some uh, side point, but still, I think it's important to the main thread of our conversation, which is you talked about the idea that most many people tend to think that the discussion on economics, policy, etc., when it comes to liberal ideas is simply the, the state on the one hand and, and the sort of the private market on the other, if you will. And perhaps one thing that they're missing when it comes to people that have legitimate neoliberal, quote unquote, neoliberal critiques is that often they're sort of talking about what happens in the middle there uh, and very strongly, too, which is where the state uh, and in conjunction with the private sphere uh, is, is doing something, whether it's constructing social policy, quote unquote, creating a market. And I should note. Before you jump into your answer that, of course, here, you and I, we, we know we're not talking about little things that liberals always complain about, right, which is subsidies, a little bit of competitive advantage. There's there's sort of a more, this is a Jacob Levy word, shout out to him, there's a more pervasive way that this stuff happens, uh, when it comes to sort of the private sphere and public sphere collusion. And I think, again, it sounded like you were alluding to that before our break, that this is sort of an area I think a lot of genuine liberals miss in the liberal cri- neoliberal critique, which is le- legitimate. Yeah,
1: no, I, I agree with that. I think I'll put it in a way that um, maybe will uh, catch some kids' imagination is, you know, for a long time when liberals would critique uh, really existing Marxist states, communists fans would say, yeah, but that's that's not the real communism. Yeah. That's a kind of perverted version of it. And I think liberals who look at capitalism today run the risk of saying the same thing. Namely, every time there's a critique of really existing capitalism, we'll say things like, yeah, but that's government corruption or, yeah, that's like uh, people colluding. And at some point you have to say, look, if that's always present then you, qua liberal, have to think through what this means, how we should think about political economy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't think the options are especially good. So I'm not saying that they're easy answers. right? You have a kind of, uh, let's call it a libertarian public choice critique, which will say that uh, states, uh, that politicians and, and civil servants and those that lobby them, they understand their own incentives and the rest of us get duped. Um, Right, And that's a kind of anti-political interpretation of what happens. And that is certainly the case that that often happens. But there are also plenty of cases where uh, civil society, politicians, and business people cooperate, whether it's through friction or through genuine agreement, to make good things happen. And we want to understand the cases where things work well and the cases where things don't work well. And maybe it helps that I grew up in the Netherlands where we have a relatively uncorrupt civil service and relatively good public works, um, high taxes too. Um, Canadians, you know, also experience this is that we could say, look, under what conditions does it actually work? And then when it works, it turns out it's liberal <laughs> conditions that it works, but not idealized. And I think we want to get away from idealizing, um, political life because often compromises are messy and often getting things done means trying it out in different ways so yeah i do feel i, I when i started to think about okay i want to start writing about political philosophy uh, and political theory it, this was uh, also just a coincidence i got asked to become a professor in the area Uh, And then I really said to myself, what what trap do I want to avoid? And the main trap I wanted to avoid is to think that markets is versus states rather than thinking, if you want to have well-functioning markets, what is it about the rest of society that needs to be there? And then politics is unavoidable because that's part of the human condition.
0: Right. If we're putting aside the, the anarchist idealist seminar, then we do yeah. have states to deal with. And that's that's an important point, I think, that, yeah. like you said, we have to assess this stuff on a case-by-case basis. And, and as you said, we can't just, you know, in an idealistic way, just sort everything that comes propagandized at us under the label of privatization must necessarily be good. And anything that comes with the word government must necessarily be bad in terms of results. Even I'm not even talking about ideals. I'm talking about, as Milton Friedman said, not intentions, results. So I think you bring up an excellent and important point that we need to look at these things on number one, a case by case basis, but number two, indeed judge them by results.
1: And also um, connected to that is a third point and that is what is the baseline of expectations, right? So once you're thinking about the real world and real world history, even marginal improvements are big improvements for lots of people, right? Um, and uh, how can we get there? And that's you know that may involve all kinds of liberal institutions, but um, it need not always be primarily markets. And I think this is. Uh, At this point, I might say something quasi-heretical, but I think it was a mistake for the liberal um, self-understanding at the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century that it became exclusively associated with markets. I think Mm. really what liberalism is about is people... um, um, Uh, making meaningful choices in their lives unimpeded by others. Right, right. But meaningful choices are in the marketplace, but also outside the marketplace. If I want to marry somebody or if I want to play with somebody, these are really, uh, or, or game with somebody, these are importantly meaningful events in my life. And I don't want others to be, uh, messing around with my choices. Right. I think that's a liberal, really an important liberal position to be in. Where market is just one of many important institutions in our life.
0: Right, right. I, I, I would personally agree with that. That's music to my ears. When I consider myself a classical liberal, I don't just consider that two paragraphs from Hayek and two paragraphs from the Wealth of Nations. If you know what I'm saying, like this is. You're right. We have to talk about as liberals, civil society, mutual aid, uh, and even the Democratic Forum. This is all part of the history of liberal thought. And you mentioned yeah. something earlier that even and another person we mentioned earlier also says that the politics area is, is not going away either. So uh, not only to your point, does perhaps this over-focus on, on just a markets conversation, which is an important conversation, but a sole focus on it might not only uh, create some mistakes, to your point, but back to our conversation about neoliberalism, that might also be something that's an impediment to understanding the legitimate uh, critics that come from the angle of such and such about neoliberalism is bad. If we, if we can't meet them on at any point because you're always on the one hand you have people always talking about markets on the other hand people talking about maybe social policy and government policy that are critiquing a form of liberalism how how can we even have that conversation that just seems like cross purposes to me
1: and, and I think if this is just a more uh, a PR um, political point but we can't even claim the the, the wins that we have so I think mm. in my lifetime we saw this amazing Development of, of gay rights and gay liberation and then gay marriage, and uh, and that's just an emancipatory story that's wonderful. And I think from a liberal perspective, hooray! But if we're focusing only on markets, we can't even claim emancipation as ours. Right. So I think right. um, I think we see part of human life that traditionally was always thought as liberal um, uh, to people who. Um, May be partial liberal or not, but we we're narrowing our own co- coalitions in that way.
0: Or, or at the very uh, most, sometimes for some people, it's just sort of tacked on as like a tertiary point, right? Well, of course, that's a liberal value, and then they move on. They <laughs> move on, of, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, a, a lifestyle choice, and I'm like, look, lifestyles, giving freedom of lifestyles, that's what liberalism is about from the beginning. So we shouldn't we shouldn't see that to other you know social justice warriors. Or do-gooders.
0: That's 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 part of our identity, right? And and, and another criticism that comes from people who uh, say they're criticizing what they view as neoliberalism again is that there is this. To our point, uh, obsession with this markets and privatization, but there's nothing else being considered in the way of other structures of power and yes. other associations that that are involved in, in this whole process. So As you said, uh, freedom of of choice and uh, you know the right not to be impeded upon that isn't just a discussion for uh, a, a very narrow idea of, of the market sphere. Right, this is a, a wide ranging conversation. I, I
1: view uh, so to put this in philosophical jargon, I view the harm principle, which is you know kind of the right not to be harmed by other people's choices and to, you know, do what you want without harming them. I view that as a very important core liberal value. Nothing in that sentence says Marcus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's also in the marketplace. You know, it's a form of fair play, and uh, but I, I, so I think uh, let's let's not narrow ourselves down so that we're defending yet. Yeah, almost unjust practices and nothing else. That would really not be good.
0: And uh, I'm going to shift our gears a little bit here. And I know what I'm about to bring up. We, You and I could probably do a whole episode or two on perhaps, but let's see what we can do at a high level to at least get some interest going for it. So we can't have a conversation about neoliberalism without uh, taking a, a stop at the Chicago School of Economics specifically, yeah. right? It had been mentioned before, but you've written about the Chicago School of Economics uh, specifically and, and written many thousands of words on it. So, so let's just kick it off here and see where we go on this note. So uh, many, and this is especially opponents of the policy recommendations that came out of Chicago, of course, the Chicago School of Economics and these these uh, the proponents of that, that point of view, they label first of all, the Chicago School of Economics as a form of neoliberalism that ended up in reality helping to deeply entrench privatization and other forms of government policy. That Basically, all that to say that the, their thought process and their ideals ended up in more business and private-friendly things rather than market-friendly results. Um, and again, that's one of the critic critiques of it. I'm not saying I'm saying that. That's what, what people say. Uh, so before I actually move on to a couple of other notes I have here, Again, and you and I like the way you say this in your blogs too. Sometimes you kind of sometimes have a turn of phrase in there. You say, "Well, the people saying this aren't stupid." So is is that the case here too? Like, is there is there even if we at the end of our journey find out that that thesis doesn't hold true, is there still some validity to this claim as a starting point to explore?
1: Yeah, I think so. So and I think um, uh, this this really connects closely to my scholarship too. So um, prior to the Chicago School um american antitrust policy was really extremely robustly against making sure that big companies wouldn't become monopolies and behind it was an was an ideology or an idea that if you leave markets to themselves they will tend toward monopoly now the chicago schoolman way um attack that from two angles. Uh, one is to say, look, in in, pract- in free angles, really, in practice, there aren't that many monopolies, number one. Number two, if there are monopolies, government was probably involved. Mm-hmm. And number three, um, actually, monopolies aren't so bad because generally speaking, the threat of competition will keep prices so low that uh, consumers are are, will get the benefit of a big corporation and low prices and uh, the risk that the monopoly will do real harm is is fairly marginal. There are going to be cases where that might be the case. So what happened is is these set of ideas really became influential. I think they also got partially sponsored by by big businesses right. and they really <laughs> dramatically changed how nor how Amer- United States how it pursued antitrust policy such that big business was starting to become good business. Um, and that's a bit of an exaggeration because, of course, antitrust policy in America remained non-trivial. But this idea that what really matters is consumer welfare, and that you can measure this indirectly, um, allowed American antitrust to become much less activist, both relative to what it was like prior, uh, say, under the New Deal, Um, or relative to German and European antitrust. Um, And so the perception that the Chicago School, which really is the intellectual engine behind these big changes, uh, law and economics as well, also in Chicago, people like Bosner, that perception is not not silly. Um, um, And it's also not easy to say whether this person, whether... This framework is all wrong because it has really intellectual firepower. But I think at bottom, what the idea that what's good for America is good for business, you know, this kind of slogan that's kind of familiar, um, that can be traced back to this 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 revolution in thinking about antitrust. European neoliberals were really aghast at this. They thought this was a disastrous way of thinking, and then what the government should do is make sure that competition, that real competition was always present in the marketplace, right? And that indirectly that will benefit consumers much more. Why? Because politically, so it's partly a political question, these big corporations can also shape uh, political outcomes. And the European uh, neoliberal said, look, we don't want that risk happening because once they get entrenched it's actually much harder for the market to do its work, so there really was a different analysis. My own bias in this debate is to the German order liberal idea here, so I do think the critics of the Chicago school are on the right that track, but I think the debate is a really uh, uh, is not an easy one to settle empirically, it's partially a political debate.
0: And and someone listening to you here might say, well, well, hold on a minute now. Um, You know, what what people, especially some of the earlier members of the Chicago School, like Milton Friedman, were saying um, and, and what they were proponents of just because it's taken by those policymakers and and business leaders and things like that, and those who have influence in those spheres, and made to be something else, or or maybe they they took a caricature of it uh, to to benefit themselves. That doesn't necessarily mean that the the Chicago School I- itself is is what we're talking about here. But but I just want to clarify that what you're focused on, of course, is is what indeed happened in this case, regardless of whether or not you know Milton Friedman was penning essays about his ten tenets of neoliberalism in the fifties or what have you, th- this is still indeed a-, a valid connection we can make, the-, the Chicago school mentality with what the business world was thinking as well, regardless if they got it wrong or not on the latter half of that.
1: Yeah. So I I I think um I think in a way, um the distinction you want to make is um is um is almost too generous and also not quite respecting the intelligence of the Chicago school. Let me explain. Okay. So I think, I think uh, people like Posner and Stigler, George Stigler, uh, who, who won a Nobel prize for economics and Posner is now a famous judge. Um, um, their view of what law and economics was going to be and how to think about uh, competition um, was itself evolving over time and complicated. So, Uh, In the 50s, indeed, uh, Stigler was not on board with the idea of consumer welfare. This was actually an idea uh, invented by a guy called Al Harberger, who now is primarily famous for being the economist who guided the Chicago uh, boys in Chile and South America. But he was really a very important economist thinking about how to think about competition. Um, uh, George Stigler, his views evolved, but I think he did come to see that, um, there, and this is, um, you know, he developed a research center in a business school that was partially funded by business, and where how to think about what to study really was primarily how to think about deregulation and giving companies much more free rein than they had in the fifties and sixties. I think with good intentions. But I do think the foreseeable effect also by their own lights was is that businesses would become more influential in the political arena and would shape what would come out of that. So I think the critiques are not... I mean, so it's possible that where the critiques are coming from is unfair and intended to delegitimize. Uh, That's definitely plausible. But I think at the same time, if we look at the activities of how... These really great intellectual entrepreneurs and thinkers of the 50s and 60s and 70s were thinking about their role as scientists. Part of their role of scientists was helping the world to for businesses, also. And I think their things partially went wrong, I think. I don't um I mean I don't view my role in life to judge them, but I do think that at times um you know, this was a phrase that the critics of the Chicago School liked a lot. A Canadian uh, uh, Galbraith invented it, countervailing powers. Mm. I think you want to think about, okay, if you're unleashing uh, markets and unleashing corporations to become ever more wealthy and powerful, the predictable effect is, is they'll have political influence. Their own theories say that. So then the question is, okay, how do we prevent Uh, that influence from going off the rails. And there's really not much in their theories to help us there.
0: Well, if we're we're on the other hand, at that point, then we're encouraging everyone to not care about uh, politics and democratic institutions. What kind of situations do we find ourselves in?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think uh, uh, you put it in terms of power. I think when uh, groups of people or corporations or institutions get overwhelmingly powerful... That's dangerous for everybody, regardless of, you know, what their source of power is.
0: Yeah, there actually is a, a Milton Friedman quote. that He's in a video somewhere and I have it written down. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact one, too. But towards the end of the conversation, he said something along the lines of, look, like in many ways, the real business of government and the real role for government is to prevent anyone's power from becoming yes. too, too big. Uh, and that includes the business community. And then he followed up that same way. And in many ways, the the biggest enemy of markets are the business community. Isn't so that, that's that's the other angle of the conversation. And and I did want to tie that in with something you, you read about in your blogs, which is that you say that even um, the types of neoliberalism that Milton Friedman identified with earlier on, as that sort of went into the future with what the Chicago School became, um, it, as you said, this sort of changed over time. And if I may, I can also tie that to what you said as well, which is the focus between sort of like a, a positive and normative economics and the validity of that also changed over time. I, I, if, if those yes. are actually related, that's what I gleaned from your work.
1: And, and also, I think um, to add just one more angle, I think Milton Friedman became the, the figurehead of the Chicago School. He became the outward um, celebrity intellectual. Mm. Um,
0: like the ambassador. The
1: ambassador, yes. Political and social and also extremely kind, I mean, I once wrote a paper criticizing him, and I sent it to him, and he sent me comments back not once but twice right I mean, so here's a guy that's just beyond belief approachable, funny, very good in debating um, but I also think that in many ways, if we look at what came to be associated with the intellectual fireworks of the chicago school it's it's people more behind the scenes, and it's not always Milton Friedman that represents what uh content wise the school was about in practice right. so I think um, sorting these things out is is um Yes, yeah, it's self-complicated,
0: and uh, I'm going to move us away from that point just a, a little bit here to, to move on to something else. But but before uh, we move on from that point, I just I I didn't note it. I forgot the exact title of it. But you have an essay in a in a in a booklet about the Chicago School. So I want to encourage listeners to to go and check out that booklet if they uh, if they're interested further. I
1: think the, the booklet is by uh, uh, is edited by Ross Emmett, uh, who's now in Arizona State, and it's uh it's the Elgar Handbook of Chicago Economics. And he knew that I liked tough assignments, so he gave me the chapter on Pinochet and... and Milton Friedman in in Chile, right. which is yeah extremely controversial and uh, very polarizing, and he knew I would have fun with it, so and I did.
0: Right, so we're going to put that in our episode notes for people to check out. Um, as we wind down our conversation here, our time is sort of slipping away from us. Um, I, I want to bring us back to the discussion you brought it up earlier about about uh, David Harvey's book. Uh, the neoliberalism book. Um, and, and you mentioned that you did write about this in your blog. There's a blog on digressions and impressions called uh, How Neoliberalism Came to Refer to Everything I Reject. Uh, in, one, in one area you say, one can safely predict that in years to come, those influenced by Harvey will point to many practices and and treat them as instances of neoliberalism that those of us who wish to renew liberalism in a utopian seeming third wave will deny having anything to do with liberalism in any sense at all. Well, I think what a lot of our conversation today does show is that your statement can kind of be taken in two ways. On the one hand, someone can can put down the paper and say, exactly, see all these idiots don't know what they're talking about. But on the other hand, uh, I think and my bias is that what this conversation does today and what this statement does is, is really say that there's probably a lot more people should think about before they just set aside the whole topic.
1: No, I, I think so too. And it's you know, it's easy to say now because I think our struggles are staring us in the face. I mean, you know, dictatorship is on the rise, ethno nationalism is on the rise, trade wars are on the rise, you know, we're in this pandemic where states are for good and for ill are doing extremely illiberal things, so right, if this isn't a moment where we are reflective on the things that liberalism got wrong mm-hmm. um you know we're we're beyond hope i think so i i I think we should welcome all i think all friends of liberty should welcome sincere criticism, and sometimes it's our worst enemies that can point us in a direction of a real weakness right? Because sometimes they understand you better than you do. And so I think uh, I like reading people who, are, who read widely and I try to read widely myself so that I can figure out, okay, how do we move forward? How can I, you know, uh, when I look my son in the eye, I said, look, I tried my best as well. Um, and so I think we need to be receptive to genuine criticism.
0: Right. And I think what you said as well is key, like, n- not only reflecting on things that liberalism may have got wrong, but also maybe that as, as a, I'm now I'm not talking about ideals, I'm talking about as a political movement, if you will, yes. or as political yes. area of thought, what we have possibly, all of us now I'm saying we uh, have, have not done enough of. It, whether that's promoting secondary associations that we're just hoping spring up overnight in the face of tyranny, which no one's apparently been, been working on, on our side as much as I think that they could have, or or, or, it, or it's anything else, or maybe it is paying a little bit more attention to democratic institutions that, for all intents and purposes, are here. There's probably some things wrong that have been done, and also things that haven't been done enough yeah. of.
1: Yeah, no, I... I so- um I think sometimes we really do own goals, so there are these fantastic economic arguments why voting doesn't matter but then when you look at the real world, if that discourages good people from voting, that's an awful result um if you if if it encourages only the bad people to organize I think that would that's also a terrible result so um I do think there is a kind of my main critique of 20th century liberalism is that there is a kind of wishful thinking that politics will sort itself out by itself, that if you just have the right ideas, good things will happen. uh, Good things will happen. And I do think even how to think about how to create a political movement that has broad appeal and that has broadly liberal sensibilities. I think these are hard and and exhausting questions that have been avoided a bit too much in the last 50 years. So I think, uh, I think you and I are agreeing, which is maybe a bit boring for a conversation. <laughs> but, um, um, but I think you're right to say that's really where a lot of hard work needs to happen because, yeah, if the good people don't stick up for, the, for these things, no one else will.
0: And, and I think that's actually an excellent place to, to move to our formal wrap up. So I'm going to do so right now. Uh, so in every episode, Eric, we want the guests to have the last word ultimately. So, so let me ask, we've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle. Let's put a finer point on our exploration of, of the main question today. So let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the, the main takeaways for someone listening to here? So, so if we want to leave uh, the listener with one or two, three, whatever it is, takeaways at a high level, what would those be?
1: liberty is something we need to construct and that we need to work on and that it requires uh, markets and norms and laws and institutions to work together Um, and that to create, uh, to put this in jargon, but to create a non-zero-sum world where we all gain, we need to think creatively, uh, focusing on many kinds of institutions where that takes place. And I also think, you know, neoliberalism had a good run. It's a good moment to renew and think anew
0: what liberalism should be. Eric Schleser, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today.
1: Thank you. I'm really delighted to meet you, and I, I hope we can continue our conversation sometime.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.